Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. I'm Charles Pryor, and you're listening to New Books in British Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. Early American colonialism is often distinguished by an urban and rural divide. Urban development was a sign of imperial progress. British writers frequently boasted about the size of early Boston and Philadelphia while mocking the scattered settlements of the French. Colonial founders characterized their social experiment as a city on a hill, and texts that promoted colonization listed the size and location of a growing number of principal towns and cities. Outside the confines of cities lay different places, the backcountry of settlement and Indian war, an unmapped landscape of forests and rivers. If the town stood out as a site of ordered settlement, the wilderness remained a place of mystery and danger. Paul Musselwhite is Associate Professor of History at Dartmouth College in Hanover, New Hampshire. In Urban Dreams, Rural Commonwealth, The Rise of Plantation Society in the Chesapeake, he challenges the conventional view of the Chesapeake as a rural society of tobacco and slavery that prevented the development of towns and cities. He shows that contemporaries argued about urban development in ways that intersected with wider discussions of the political and commercial order of the Chesapeake and its place in theories of commerce and the state in Britain between the early 17th century and the American Revolution. Paul Musselwhite joins me from Hanover. Welcome to the podcast, Paul. Hi, thank you. Thank you for having me. So the book had its origins in the study of medieval and early modern Europe. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about those roots? Sure. Um, so I had actually um, studied a lot of uh, medieval and, and early modern European history as an undergraduate, um, and I had uh, almost been tempted to move in that direction for my own for my own career. And uh, so so when I when I became uh, a graduate student teaching teaching early American history. Um, and and TAing and assisting in classes, um, I was always overzealous in 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 wanting to teach uh, medieval Europe and um, and also kind of working with the medievalists um, at my graduate institution, looking for uh, recommendations and new work and and these kinds of things while I was beginning to pursue early America. And I, and I distinctly remember one day discussing with. Uh, Discussing with a, a group of um, undergraduates about um, the relationship with between cities and, and kingship and cities before states, um, and uh, and I was trying to help them to to understand this, and it it struck me that what I was I was talking about here this this unique position of cities in in medieval and early modern Europe um, didn't jive at all with with work that I was then doing trying to understand early Carolina and early Chesapeake society. And because, as, as you noted, these are places that we traditionally see as lacking any, any kinds of, of cities. And we tell the story as, as one where they just don't, um, they just never really develop. Um, and so I, I started looking around to see, well, are there any echoes at all of, of some of these, these older ideas about cities and towns in, in these colonies? And so I, and I was, I was, I was struck by um, the whole length of 
um, number of legislative uh, acts that are passed in in Virginia and in Maryland um, around trying to develop towns. And I turned to um, one from 1706. Um, so a hundred years after the foundation of Virginia and find that Robert Beverly, one of the symbols of one of the symbols of the, the planter aristocracy by the eighteenth century, is is shepherding through this piece of legislation that proposes establishing towns with with these people called benchers and brethren assistants of the of the guild hall um, and and this whole elaborate architecture um, of of urban corporate governance. Um, and and I I recognize that that this is actually that all of these pieces of legislation have been there all along. We've tended to dismiss them as just oddities and peculiarities, um, but through the 17th century, they actually form a pattern. This persistent uh, focus on different uh, forms of, of of urban governance through all these pieces of legislation, um, and this is this is just at this moment when our traditional story of the Chesapeake tells us that that elite planters are trying to carve out their place and relating themselves to poor ordinary people and transitioning to slavery. And they're also engaged in this whole process of debating urban constitutionalism, which which we've totally um, overlooked. So so it came out of that that medieval and early modern. Uh, study and, and looking for those particular features in 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 the colonial era and actually being surprised that I found far more of them than I was initially expecting. <laughs> so when I began to teach overviews of colonial history, and I guess when I was reading uh, set texts in colonial history, I won't I won't name any of them, but I, I, we can all guess what they were. <laughs> I always thought of the Chesapeake as a uh, a little slice of England. It was yes, it was rural, it was aristocratic, it was heavily Anglican, it was monarch, monarchical. Excuse me. So it's heavily heavily inflected by uh, English uh, traditions and English values. So how how wrong was I? <laughs> um, yeah. So I, on one level, you you weren't you weren't wrong at all. That it certainly is. Uh, by absolute terms, very rural. Um, uh, all of the social history that was done in the 70s and 80s, you know, definitively proves that um, this is a this is a place with pop- really low population densities, and that that rings true to what contemporaries themselves are observing. They're saying, actually, you know, this is uh, this is a a dangerously rural place. Uh, they they pick it out and say, you know, that we're uniquely failing here. They're looking around. Um, they're looking around the British Atlantic world, and they're looking particularly at the Spanish uh, um, Spanish colonial America. And they're saying, well, we we don't have we don't have towns in the Chesapeake, and this is our particular failing. Um, but after that question of traditional values then the idea that the chesapeake is just a reflection of a of of english traditional values that's where i think we've we've become stuck because we tend to see those traditional values as being something that are aside from politics that there is a a deeper level of um that there is a deeper level of culture that is not connected to the tumultuous politics of the 17th century um and so therefore the idea of um the way that agriculture happens, the way that um, uh, so the common fields versus enclosure, and um, and questions about county governance and the power of the gentry and the power of the nobility, and questions about feudal rights—that all of those things—and and then of course also questions about urban rights and urban independence vis-à-vis the emerging state—that all of those questions are are kind of work on a political, on a cultural level. Um, that people just bring them with them. As uncontested issues, but actually they're all 
being hotly contested in England. And so when they're brought to America, it's unsurprising that some people are certainly bringing with them ideas about manorial, rural traditions um, and the Anglican church, but plenty of other people are bringing other ideas too. And so it's the contest of those things that actually forges the plantation society in the Chesapeake. It's not that um, it's not that they are predestined to be uh, rural um, in in any particular way, but that they um, they end up being rural, um, particularly so, and even you know distinctly so. This doesn't look like English manorial countryside um, any more than it looks like um, a big urban center. It is plantation society is a unique new formation. Um, and it's a product of the intersection of all of these different visions about how politics and society are going to work in the 17th century. Oh, so that raises a question um, that I kind of want to want to follow up on, if I can. And that is the question about the, the chronology of the book is, is quite broad. It, it, it covers the period from the formation of colonies very, very early on, right through the 18th century, and the epilogue takes us to the revolution. We tend to think of colonial formation as an act in time that is discrete, presto, a colony is, is founded. Um, but this book really shows that colonies shift uh, over time and are driven by an internal argument, uh, the, the likes of which this book is concerned with. Um, what's, what are the f- general phases of, if you like, uh, the transformation of the Chesapeake as we go through this period? Are there broad d- divisions that we can identify? Um, yeah, so I think there are, um, there are a, f- a few distinct moments, and I, I, I don't... Um, the way that the book is is structured i i tend not to think of it in terms of eras so much as as in as the inflection points that sit between them um and i think that um that we see an, an early inflection point right around um the the late 16 teens early 1620s when when the the company's initial plans and the way they think that they're going to marry um, their commercial vision with the interests of colonists on the ground um, all starts to come to um, into into conflict, um, and you get these crises that ultimately bring down the Virginia Company. And then you have another era, um, <clears throat> if you like, in the in the early in the sort of second quarter of the 17th century, um, where I think there is a a tremendous amount of uncertainty about where power lies um, within a colonial context and and how exactly um, these colonies are going to be governed. And we see this particularly in Maryland, um, uh, that and that's partly to do with the questions about the legitimacy of Lord Baltimore because of his Catholicism in the wake of all of the um, in the wake of all of the the conflicts obviously around the English um, uh, the English Revolution, but those questions are not simply rooted in, for example, in Baltimore's legitimacy, but they are rooted in questions about how exactly Baltimore intends to govern this place. I mean, is it going to have manorialism? How are people going to get hold of land? How is representation going to work? How is he going to control commerce? And so we see, I think, a real period of uncertainty in the middle of the 17th century um, that that gives way um, to to one where you're increasingly in the second half of the 17th century seeing a, a, a more straightforward divide between 
local elites and um, and uh, metropolitan officials about the purpose and nature of of colonial governance and the structure and 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 by extension not simply the purpose and nature not simply the 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 center periphery relationship but that that drills down into exactly how the colonies are going to be structured because um, that actually affects the center the the center periphery relationship it's not simply a, a matter of high politics it's about local formation and so you get metropolitan and colonial um, perspectives and then the book um, the book really then focuses at the end on the way in which the 18th century um, the largest planters in the Chesapeake have really have really won the argument and they've done so by structuring um, structuring the society around their own estates and their own political vision um, and so the the era what we think of as the golden age of the of the Chesapeake planter in the mid 18th in the first half of, and to the mid mid 18th century is one that um, is one that is a function of everything that has gone before um, and and planters have worked out a relationship to uh, to the state um, which facilitates enslavement of Africans facilitates the aggrandizement of large pieces of land um, and so forth and it's only then that they construct that they fully construct this vision of a sort of rural idyll with manors and big plantations um, but but they do that in response to their success in many respects uh, it, Right. So the the plantation. I just want to sort of highlight three themes that that are sort of cut across the book and emerge from the discussions about urbanization that that it examines. And the first has to do with, I suppose, the the most prominent element of the Chesapeake, and that's going to be plantation commerce. So, what is the link um, between plantations on one hand? And towns on the other in contemporary debates on how to shape and control commerce. Hmm. Yeah, so pl- plantations. Uh, I mean, the first thing to to recognize is that plantations and towns are initially um, understood to be the same thing, right? Um, the the earliest Virginia Company uh, tracts about the colony actually assume that a plantation is a is a community is a is a is a civic unit that um, that actually probably is centered around a town, um, and that it has an urban core that that gives it um, that that is that is part of its structure. But its its legitimacy is rooted in the fact that the plantation is a is a community, um, and so it doesn't. It makes sense then that a lot of people who are just, who are building large estates see the necessity of building their own town um, as a way of organizing their local community. They're not seeing their plantation as a purely private estate. They're seeing it as the center of a nexus of um, um, so of of social and economic relationships in their community, and then the. Uh, and so they want to build a town to cement that um, and to to give it a center where they can actually control a market, um, regulate trade uh, that moves through it. And so the regulation of of trade is supposed to happen through a town. I mean, this is how this is the this is the entire vision of what constitutes legitimacy in organization of trade in Europe. That it has to happen within a set physical space of a town. Um, and so uh, it. It is only gradually as the state comes in and says that it wants to, and the imperial state comes in and says that it wants to have some degree of control over 
a town or urban functions and trade in the mid 17th century, beginning with the Navigation Acts, um, seeking to manipulate the, the, the economic system of empire, that towns start to become these critical flashpoints of division then between this between the center and the um and the colony over um over the shape and control of commerce um and then planters increasingly think about their own plantations as being um an alternative in some respects um to the town as a unit of um as a unit of regulation and they develop out the theories of their plantation as a as a political space as a as a as a form of society that gives them legitimacy to regulate commerce themselves rather than relying upon towns and cities. As someone who's done a lot of work on the history of political thought myself, I was sort of struck. I mean, I haven't read uh, as much uh, urban history as I probably should have. Uh, and I'll, I promise to read more uh, <laughs> if, if, if any of it is, is as good as this is. Um, but what really struck me was how uh, you there is so much politics and there is so much political theory uh, in in these conversations. Um, and one of the implications of your argument, and one of the things that you seem to be wanting to say uh, to people who are doing uh, doing urban history more broadly, is that they need to pay closer attention to uh, questions of law, uh, questions of constitutionalism, and questions of ideology. Um, why do you why do you argue that? Um, well, at, at its root, uh, a, a city kind of has these has this long standing associations with the with the core um, ideas of of Western um, Aristotelian political thought. Um, the idea that the city is the is the core unit of um, of for the establishment of civic virtue, for the for what makes a a community, um, and so a, a city is is a model for that. And so when we're looking to understand uh, how that uh, how that evolves in the sixteenth, seventeenth, eighteenth century, we we really need to understand the local reality on the ground in a city to understand how those ideas are being negotiated with the larger states. So when we tell stories, and so in some respects, this is, I'm, I'm actually arguing this the opposite way around, which is why other people need to pay more attention to, to urban history and why the political, the historians of political thought need to pay more attention to urban history, that, that the realities worked out on the ground um, around jurisdiction and law uh, matter for these larger questions of the emergence of state structures and the, the the battle over this and I think European historians to some extent have um, have have known that for a while mm. but but colonial historians and historians of the British Empire more generally um, have tended to see um, urban spaces as ones that are just created pragmatically um, on the periphery. But at the same time, to, to switch that around and to actually to answer the question about why urban historians need to pay closer attention to the law and constitutionalism, I think um, the, the opposite holds true, which is that to understand the experience of ordinary people in towns and cities that are not the elites and the planners. And when we, when we focus on like urban architecture or um, uh, economic development, we tend to focus on the wealthy merchants and the urban planners. Um, but one of the things that uh, oddly, I think that 
focusing on politics and constitutionalism does is gives a, a voice to and an understanding of the political vision of of ordinary people who may or may not choose to live in towns. And so what I what I'm particularly keen to do in the book is to emphasize that the decisions that ordinary people made about whether they would relocate to one of these proposed new towns or um, how they would um, trade once they got into one of those places, how they would acknowledge or not acknowledge the authority of um, or the legal authority of a particular market as a as a legal space that you had to trade your tobacco, for example, that those, um, those acts of daily life actually constituted um, political action once you understand the the legal and political ramifications of of urban um, identity and charters and their relationship to other forms of colonial sovereignty um, and, and and imperial sovereignty, you then see the actions of people who haven't left us that many written sources, um, poorer planters, um, urban craftsmen, even the actions of the enslaved, for example, as responses to that to those bigger questions about mercantilism that we tend to leave those people out of. Mm. So that uh, that perspective, you've you've used the word local uh, a number of times <laughs> uh, as we've had this discussion, and um, I'm struck. And you quote in the book uh, work by Lauren Benton, and increasingly, um, the history of early America has gone through a number of sort of discussions about. Uh, scope and size from Atlantic uh, to Pacific to Oceanic uh, to Continental uh, and back again. Now it seems that uh, the local is back uh, with with a with a vengeance, <laughs> and that that all imperial politics somehow has a local dimension. So the the the, the discussion uh, about urban spaces is one of those local spaces that's that's essentially the argument that we're we're getting here yeah i think that um the the, the local i think it's not so much purely a return to the local and a return to the to the uh, community studies that were done in the in the 60s and 70s and the the, the very detailed social history but it is mm. a a recognition of the of the complicated relationship between the local and the global right and the way in which um the way in which each community is is wrestling with these larger questions and has its own perspective on them, and that people's individual understandings of of the way that the state worked um, were constructed by their experience of their particular community, or, or however they defined that, and that the process of defining that um, is actually a process of defining how they fit within the larger imperial structure. Um, and I think it, I, to some extent, I think it even has a reflection on. Uh, it's really a reflection of of contemporary issues and our increasing um, uncertainty about the uh, about the nation state. Right, we're telling stories now um, that that don't center the nation, um, but also don't center um, abstract global forces. Because over the last um, ten years or so, we have we've seen that. People in society, in, in contemporary society, are yearning to understand the relationship between local dynamics and 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 globalization. And so, in breaking away from the nation state, we're actually telling stories about um, about communities that 
and, and, and providing a usable past for understanding communities um, that governed in ways before the nation um, and how local communities structured themselves before the before the sort of monopoly of the state and the nation um, in the in the mid to late eighteenth century. So the 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 last uh, theme then that I want to pick up is is, is republicanism, mm-hmm. um, which is. In a lot of ways, you know, the ideology of the Kivitas, the the local ideology of the defined republic of citizens. But how does this work, and how does your work in particular uh, seek to change how we understand republicanism in early America, and particularly its agrarian demelo- uh, uh, dimensions? Mm. Yeah. So, uh, in some respects, it feels um, uh, when I when I began. To recognize, um, even as a grad student, that this that this work kind of spoke to um, to this long tradition of of Republican of writing about Republicanism and uh, in in early American history, I, I you, you approach that with some trepidation because, of course, there is a a huge <laughs> literature um, on the on the Republican uh, synthesis, as it's called, around the American Revolution. Um, but uh, a lot of that work uh, really roots the story in the in the 18th century um emerging out of imported ideas from Europe and um because it it doesn't look back to the 17th century partly out of a trepidation to uh, about the potential for a sort of whiggish narratives that find its origins right in the earliest general assemblies and government structures that we we see this inevitability of the american um story the rise of republicanism um and and so they instead focus on these sorts of the broader socio political trends in colonial america that give rise to that that make people very receptive to resub- to republican thought when it sort of appears as an import from england in the in this sort of second quarter of the 18th century and what i um trying to do and and so in that respect it then becomes kind of odd that it um it, in that respect i should say it becomes odd that it becomes so f- much a fo- focus of uh, agrarianism and um and particularly appealing to um, Chesapeake planters, who of course become the vanguard of these republican ideologies at the time of the American Revolution. Um, so, what I try to do is actually um, uh, give a a much more complicated backstory to the way that republicanism um, has many roots in in the early Chesapeake, um, and that they become tied to agrarianism. Uh, various moments and they don't necessarily um they, you know, they become connected to agrarianism in a in a way that is uniquely american and is not simply a kind of um an import from europe and so initially republicanism is as you said kind of tied to the idea of the city and the and the civitas um um of of a city and it becomes um, so connected with rurality by the 18th century, but it does that through this process by which the virtues and advantages of the city as a as a unit that promotes um, civic participation, political legitimacy, um, become stripped away um, and are replaced by this vision of rurality. And so the plantation really comes to take on um, a lot of the a lot of the virtues and a lot of the republican associations. Um, for southern planters uh, that that the city had previously held, um, and that I think is the way we we actually understand republicanism as 
as as a deep and complex intertwining into American into English American colonial experience without making it a Whiggish story that it arrives at the beginning um, and kind of just gradually emerges into the American Revolution. Just a little bit more on republicanism because it's it's um, I think it's maybe an important point to sort of tease out, and I just wonder does do you find a tension between this agrarian inflected uh, republicanism and the fact that these people were also slave owners? <laughs> they don't feel like they can move all the way to the conception of their plantation as being a a Republican unit in some respects, actually, ironically, until they um, until they move in the early 18th century entirely over to, um, or almost entirely over to a slave-based economy. And so it, there's actually um, not so much attention, but a, a way in which when the community, when plantations are units within these more complicated county neighborhood structures where they actually have to um, balance the interests of various um, of various people and their own economic position is a little uncertain and unstable, um, then they they have difficulty kind of envisioning their own individual estates um, as having um, particular legitimacy to speak to uh, to the state directly um, because they recognize the complexity of, of relationships that um, that make up the community. But then once they move, and I think around the pivot of the 18th of the turn of the 18th century, to full scale, um, to a full scale model of slavery, um, they begin to articulate this vision that they have the economic independence necessary, um, that their plantations really represent um, distinct economic units um, where they can speak to. Um, where they can speak for their community and to the state directly. Um, so I think. In that sense, slavery is is essential to the way in which plantations, private plantations, um, can be can claim the legitimacy um, of 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 a civic unit, uh, where previously individual estates could never quite seem like they were the equivalent of a town or city because they didn't have that they were always economically dependent, obviously, upon larger structures, the town and the city. Um, uh, and the market through and the town and the city kind of mediate the market right for for a plantation but once you get um, into the 18th century planters with the large enslaved populations feel confident that they they can make their own they can they can make their own deals they've got their own enslaved population they've got guaranteed supplies of um, of commodities and you get this emergence of self-confident planters um, who claim that that they have the economic power to to regulate for their community and to deal directly with the state in a way that they have never quite felt like they had in the in the 17th century. I've been speaking to Paul Musselwhite, the author of Urban Dreams, Rural Commonwealth, The Rise of Plantation Society in the Chesapeake, which is published by the University of Chicago Press. It's comprehensively researched and crisply written. And I thank you, Paul, for taking the time to speak to me on the podcast today. Thank you. 